Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. This week's episode of Thinking Outside the Boombox is brought to you by Omeo. Omeo is a travel booking platform that makes planning a journey in Europe and North America effortless. Just enter your travel details and Omeo will magically give you all the train, bus, flight, and ferry options for your journey. It's never been simpler to book your first real vacation for 2021. Best of all, using Omeo saves you time and money, and that's a win-win in my book. Omeo wants to help you leave your house this summer by offering 5% off your next booking. Just head to omeo.com and use the code OMEO5. That's O-M-I-O-5 at checkout. It's valid until July 31st for new users on all modes of transport. It's just the pick-me-up that 2021 needs. Omeo, plan, book, and love the journey. Terms and conditions apply. Let's start the show. What's up, listeners? Welcome to another episode of Thinking Outside the Boombox, your number one source for hip-hop and R&B news. My name is Ahmad, and I am your host. It is Sunday, July 25th, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Thinking Outside the Boombox. Uh, Things are going to be a little bit different this week and next week. So I am going on vacation Um, so I decided, you know, rather than just take the next two episodes off, I wanted to just air some encores of some episodes that I've done in the past that, uh, whose topics are, you know, you know, essentially pertinent to what's happening now. So, uh, this episode is going to jump right into the dig deeper segment from an episode I did 
around this time last year, actually, in August of 2020, the Life After Death episode, and this is where I discuss posthumous albums. So, you know, with DMX passing this year and him releasing a posthumous album or Swiss Beats and DMX's estate releasing a posthumous album and then Pop Smoke released his second posthumous album, um, it seems like this topic is still top of mind and still very important. So the episode this week um, is an encore of the Life After Death episode I did discussing the history um, of posthumous albums and kind of the, the categories that they can fall in. Um, so enjoy this episode. You already know what it is. Uh, follow the podcast at TOTB, the podcast, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, yeah. So that is the episode for this week, and next week I'll be back with another Encore episode. So, enjoy. Welcome back to Thinking Outside the Boombox. It is now time for the Dig Deeper segment. Um, As I mentioned at the top of the episode, this week I'm going to be talking about posthumous albums. Um... 2020 has been quite a year, Um, possibly the worst year in my time on this earth. Um, There's been constant tragedy that has included the deaths of many black notables and celebrities. Um, And so this week I wanted to talk about posthumous albums, which are essentially albums that are released by an artist after an artist has died. In the past month, we've received posthumous albums from Juice World and Pop Smoke. We also got Mac Miller's posthumous album Circles um, earlier in the year in January. Um, There's a weird history with posthumous albums. Um, There are some that are revered, like Biggie's Life After Death album, and then there are many that are so far from what the artist would have released while they were alive that it seems sacrilegious. Um, Pac's Life by Tupac, released 10 years after his death, comes to mind in that category. But NPR actually summarized um, the phenomenon of posthumous albums in a really accurate way. Ann Powers, who is from All Things Considered, um, she mentioned in an episode that there are typically three categories that posthumous albums generally fall under, and that's going to be the crux of the, the episode today. The first is the warm to the touch category. So these are the albums that were released shortly after the artist died, were likely being worked on before the artist passed away. Um, these are the albums that the artist likely would have made. Um, the second category is the infinite vault category. These are the albums where we start to get a lot of music from the throwaways, from the back catalog, experiments. It's important music and is worth hearing, but it likely will never get anywhere near the artist's best work or even their mid-tier work. And then there's the potpourri category. Like, you know, potpourri is just a mix of a lot of things, and the albums that fall into this category are usually just a mixture of a lot of bullshit. Um, They never should have been made in the first place, likely the furthest from what the artist would have released and likely a money grab on behalf of the people releasing it. Now, the albums that make it into the potpourri category are usually all bad. Warm to the Touch are usually the ones that are all good. The Infinite Vault can go both ways because you can pull together a bunch of songs from an artist like Back Catalog 
um, if done the right way, you know, with a, you know, consistent and coherent theme with the right people working on it, it can be done correctly. But a lot of times it gets cluttered and there's no through line. There's nothing connecting the songs and it can just be like a, a greatest hits, but there, there weren't hits yet, you know? Um, so the infinite vault category can go either way. So in this episode, I wanted to give some examples of some notable albums in hip hop and R and B that definitely reside in each of those three categories. Um, we'll talk about where they fell short and where they really succeeded. But before we jump into those, I wanted to talk about why estates or record labels release posthumous albums in the first place. From a positive perspective, um, these albums can provide a nice ending to an artist's too short career. They can give the fans one more look into an artist's mind. They can give the fans a chance to cherish these artists. Um, they can complete an artist's vision, uh, especially if they were working on a project before they passed. But there are often times when the record labels are looking to exploit an artist's death and fans' grief over an artist's death to make more money. These albums are usually unlikely to land in that warm-to-the-touch category. Um, Don't get me wrong, money is a, a factor no matter how good the album ends up being, but sometimes it's just a little too overt. And it's not always the labels. Sometimes the families or the estates of the artists are exploitative of the fans, and they want that extra financial support from a new album. And it's no surprise, really, Um, When an artist dies, streams and purchases of their old music shoot through the roof as fans aim to remember them by listening to their work. And it's really added to that age-old idiom of giving people their roses while they can still smell them. Um, But it's no wonder why greed sets in and we see those exploitative tactics from labels and families. And then there's also the ethical conversation. Um, which is besides those albums that were being worked on before an artist passed, if an artist if an artist hadn't shared some music with us, there was probably a good reason for it. There are many camps that think it's wrong to share music that an artist had no intention of releasing, especially once they've died. Um, and this is especially the case in those Infinite Vault potpourri albums where they're just digging music out of an artist's back catalog, mashing songs together with no rhyme or reason. Um, artists fight for creative control for their entire careers for the most part. And when that control gets placed in someone else's hands, the lines get blurred. Um, posthumous albums allow the artists to speak from the grave, but is it right when ultimately that voice isn't truly theirs? Personally, I think there is a right way to release posthumous albums. Obviously, releasing those albums that were already being made before they died is a great way to complete an artist's vision. And I think that's the right thing to do and definitely on the up and up. Regarding reaching deep into the catalogs to make an album, I think some sort of compilation supported and created by the artist that frequently collaborated with the artist that has passed is a nice tribute. And it makes sense because those artists know their vision the best. But there needs to be some consistency and cohesion. At the end of the day, the creative direction and energy of the album needs to at least be on par with the artists and what they normally released. Um, So I want to talk about some examples of very popular albums that we've gotten in hip hop and R&B that fall into each of those categories. So I'll save the warm to the touch albums for last. Let's um, let's jump into the infinite vault categories. So I mentioned 
that the infinite the albums that fall into the infinite vault categories can be good or bad depending on how they're um, how they're handled. Um, I want to talk about two albums um, in this category. Um, they're both actually positive. So the first one is "Legends Never Die" by Juice World. Juice World um, was a Chicago rapper and artist. He passed away in December of 2019, so very recently. I was never um, a super huge fan of his work, but I definitely know that he was an icon for the generations younger than me. He openly struggled with depression and drug abuse, frequently rapped about it. Um, He famously made a song called 27 Club in honor of his fellow late rappers XXXTentacion and Little Pete, where he said, we ain't making it past 21. And then sure enough, he ended up dying days after his 21st birthday. I know his death fueled a lot of grief among the hip-hop community. Um, And his first posthumous album, Legends Never Die, was released just a few weeks ago on July 10th. Um, The album has been doing numbers, sold nearly 500,000 in the first week, which nobody does anymore. Um, And obviously that's streams included. Um, So 500,000, like, equivalent album units. Um, It's the biggest posthumous album since Pac and Big dropped theirs in 96 and 97. The fans have clearly reacted to Juice World's death, supporting his work in waves. Um, Juice had nearly recorded 2,000 songs before he died, so, you know, definitely expect more albums from his camp and from Interscope. Um, His family has already said, quote, from the bottom of our hearts, we want to thank each and every one of you for your undivided adoration and love for Juice. You guys meant the entire world to Juice, and by listening to his music, watching his videos, and sharing your stories about him, you're keeping his memory alive forever. We plan to honor Juice's talents, his spirit, and the love he felt for his fans by sharing unreleased music and other projects that he was passionately in the process of developing. So, depending on you know how they they handle things, it's likely... We're going to get a lot of of albums from the Infinite Vault category for Juice World because 2,000 songs, he has enough music to <laughs> supply us with decades of projects. So it really just depends on how they decide to handle it. But regarding Legends Never Die, Juice World was clearly a hit maker. His pop sensibilities are evident throughout the entire album with every single song grabbing you from somewhere within, making you move. But at the same time, the album is also so full of that depression and anguish that he's always expressed while remaining open about how he's trying to overcome it in many ways it reminds me of the thematic elements of mac miller's last two albums the feelings that juice shares in this project are beautiful they're candid they're honest the album is a vibe and it also feels like an album juice would have put together while he was still with us Um, Juice World was always endearing and his charisma helped him gain a cult following based on his music and his personality. Um, He was a voice for so many people. And this album was a good one in that it helped them hold on to lasting memories of Juice World. Um, Like I said, there's definitely more coming from his camp. So hopefully they can continue to capture his creative vision when releasing music from his clearly loaded vault. Um, But this was an example of doing it right. You know, they you know, pulled together a lot of music that thematically made sense with what Juice would have released and put it out in a pretty nice project. Um, And it's one that I keep coming back to, um, you know, in the weeks since it's been released. Um, So another album that falls into this category is Vulnerable by Marvin Gaye. 
So um, this album was released in 1997, 13 years after Marvin Gaye was killed. Um, and the songs on it were recorded long before then. This album was a collection of songs that Marvin Gaye had been shelving since 1968 um, because they, they showed a completely different style from him. It was originally taught, called The Ballads, um, but this album, Vulnerable, is an album full of jazz-influenced and inspired ballads. Like Marvin had been inspired to make songs like this for a while, um, inspired by Frank Sinatra, inspired by who he considered his idol, Nat King Cole. Um, and he began working on some of these songs in 1968, and then again in 1977, and he just kept shelving the album each time um, to make more popular material because he wasn't sure he had what it took to be a popular crooner you know he was insecure about his ability to sing ballads like this which is so interesting um, because he's always had such a good voice um he recorded many of these songs multiple times and when he was finally satisfied and ready to release the album he ended up shelving it indefinitely because he released an album called here my dear which i think was inspired by uh one of his ex-wives who he got divorced from um and it was a critical and commercial failure and so he just scrapped this project despite it being you know one of the projects that he said was one of his favorites um but in 1997 motown finally pulled some of the songs together to make the album vulnerable and the album is really just that it's marvin Gaye, how we hadn't really heard him before he's got wide sweeping orchestration behind him um as a much calmer more emotional side of himself takes center stage his voice is full of soul it's so serene it's a short album it's less than 30 minutes but it's a a really great release and i'm glad that motown pulled together these lost recordings from his vault um so you know this shows that there are good ways to pull together albums from just music that's just sitting in a back catalog like you know, think about that artist's vision and how they like to release albums and see if there's a through line that you can make through a lot of the songs in this catalog and maybe get some people to that were close to the, the artist to help put this project together. Like, there are, are good ways to do that. So now let's get into the potpourri category, which is full of a lot of albums that were done the complete wrong way. So I want to start with a couple Tupac albums. Um, Tupac honestly has an album for every single one of these categories. He's got one in the warm to the touch. He has some that could belong in the infinite vault, but he has two for sure in the potpourri category. Um, Not all of Tupac's posthumous albums are bad, but honestly, Tupac's estate has put out so many posthumous albums. Most of them are not good. Um, they're honestly a big reason the whole Tupac's Alive Living in Cuba theories gained so much traction because his estate just kept putting out music. Um, I'm a huge fan of Tupac, and I'm definitely of the camp that most of these posthumous releases slightly tarnish his legacy. I don't understand why Afeni Shakur, his mother, let some of them be released in the way that they were. Um, but there are two albums specifically that were just a really bad idea, and that's Loyal to the Game and then there's Pac's Life. So Loyal to the Game was released in 2004. It was primarily produced by Eminem and his longtime collaborator, 
uh, collaborator, excuse me, and producer Louis Resto. So Eminem was essentially moved by Tupac in his career. He wrote Afeni a letter requesting permission to produce the album. Um, and the album was just so disappointing. It's essentially an album where Eminem tried to pair his sound and production style with Pac's vocals and they just don't match. Like he sped some of Pac's vocals up to match some of his production. He spliced Pac's words up so that it sounded like Tupac was saying G unit. Like he paired Pac with Dito for a pop rock ballad. Obi Trice, G unit were were all featured on songs with Tupac. There were weird sounds and effects throughout the album that Pac never would have rapped over. And let's just be real, Lloyd Banks and Young Buck could only have dreamed of being on a Tupac album if he was alive. Eminem had never even met Tupac, and that really showed throughout the entire album. There was such a large disconnect between the Pac that we knew and what we heard on this album. It doesn't sound like anything that he would ever release. And then there was Pac's Life, which was released in 2006, which was somehow so much worse. Um, This was the DJ Khaled of Tupac albums. The vocals they used of Tupac were actually worth hearing, but they got lost behind the incredibly commercialized production and the 26 features that were spread out across 13 songs on this album. Pac probably wouldn't have worked with 70% of these artists like Tupac and Chameleonaire, Tupac and Young Buck, Ashanti. It, It was just such a watered down version of his work that it was really embarrassing that this was released. Um, potpourri at its finest. I honestly don't think Pac was honored in any way with this album. It felt like a cash grab. And, you know, look, just because Pac's estate has released some bad albums doesn't mean that they weren't successful. Fans missed and loved Tupac so much that nearly all of his posthumous albums have sold like crazy. But these two albums, Loyal to the Game and Pac's Life, are perfect examples of what can happen when you oversaturate the market with music that a late artist likely would never have approved of. Um, and I honestly hope that, you know, they're looking back on both of these albums and regretting that it's it's in their catalog. Like, I honestly shouldn't be even be able to find these on streaming services. You got to take those down. Um, so then there is the album Michael by Michael Jackson. So I honestly won't spend a lot of time talking about Michael Jackson on this podcast, but while his second posthumous album, um, Escape, wasn't that great either, Michael was a shit show. Um, It was released toward the end of 2010, about 18 minutes after his death, and it was mired in controversy. Um, The meat of the album is mediocre and it contains features from Akon, Lenny Kravitz, and 50 Cent. Like, what? <laughs> Michael Jackson and 50 Cent? Um, but beyond that, the huge controversy behind this album was that all of Michael Jackson's family, his fans and producers in the industry, including Will I Am, believed that there are a few songs on this album that featured someone else singing as Michael. Sony um, and the producers, which included Teddy Riley, claim that the confusion stems from the fact that the production of his voice used a pitch correction software. But many weren't convinced this controversy even featured a class action lawsuit against Sony and the estate. And I'm still not even sure how that ended. But essentially, a consumer was like, yo, this is fraud, stuff like this. And from what the little I can find about it on the Internet 
the case wasn't thrown out, so I'm not exactly sure how it ended. But for a legacy that was already tarnished in many other ways, uh, this was clearly not the way to start things off. So that was an album that was a complete failure. Um, and then I want to end the potpourri category. You know, I, I, I talked about Tupac albums. I got to be fair and talk about two Biggie albums. Um, Biggie's got some potpourri of his own. And that is the album Duets, the final chapter. And then there's the collaborative album with his wife, Faith Evans, called The King and I. So Biggie may have released um, one of the like best posthumous albums in hip-hop history, but Bad Boy Records was certainly not immune to releasing some cringeworthy releases of, of their own. Duets, the final chapter, was an album released in 2005 that took unreleased and released Biggie verses, combined them with popular rappers and singers' contributions. It was similar to Pac's life, and it was also similar in the fact that it just didn't land. Um, it was a smorgasbord of artists that Biggie likely would never have worked with, delivering subpar contributions that were well beneath Biggie. Clear cash grab, a big one. Um, and it was also a big cash grab in the fact that the album went platinum. So, you know, successful in that grab of cash. Albums like this were so far beneath what Biggie crafted in his too short catalog. Nearly every verse had already been heard before. So this wasn't even an opportunity to hear new unreleased Biggie content like the album that preceded it, um, Born Again. And while the thought of new Biggie songs with Nas or Mob Deep or Big Pun are intriguing, most of the songs on this album just aren't really that interesting. Um, and it didn't leave anything for the next generations to be inspired by Biggie's legacy. And Diddy should really be ashamed of himself for putting this album together. And then there was The King and I. Um, it was released in 2017. It was essentially a collab album between Biggie and his wife, Faith Evans, 20 years after he passed. Essentially, Faith and a bevy of producers, most notably Stevie J, who is a frequent and esteemed bad boy producer and Faith Evans' current husband, um, created an album where they slowed down a bunch of Biggie vocals so that they could be used in ballads with Faith. And they just released this three years ago. Um, there's a song on there called Ten Wife Commandments where they flipped Biggie's infamous Ten Crack Commandments song to detail the rules of having a good marriage. That's all well and good, but is that really on brand for the Notorious B.I.G.? Um, this album had 25 songs, like eight skits, and it was well over an hour. Um, it was really a poorly conceived Faith Evans album with Biggie just thrown in there. Like Faith is a great singer, but this just wasn't a good idea from the jump. Um, so those are the five albums that I think best really um, are the best examples of the potpourri category. You know, that just throwing some stuff together, trying to like keep the name going, trying to get some more money off of the name, and they rarely ever work. But then there are the ones that do. And so this is the warm to the touch category. So these are, um, like I mentioned, the projects that, you know, usually the artist had already been working on before they passed. Um, but they're also just uh, albums that um, really help to complete an artist's vision or to keep an artist's legacy going and in the right way. 
So I'll start with probably the pinnacle of posthumous albums, which is Life After Death by the Notorious B.I.G. Um, this one almost isn't fair. Uh, Life After Death was recorded before Biggie was killed, and it was released two weeks after his death. It technically might not count because he had fully completed the album before he died, but it was released after he died, and you really can't mention these albums without talking about this one. Biggie had already delivered a classic in Ready to Die, but this album was so much bigger and better. He turned up the intensity on the gangster mafia persona. His flow was untouchable. His storytelling was untouchable. The pictures he painted were vivid, giving detailed accounts of street tales. This was the Godfather movie in music form. He turned up the heat on the East Coast, West Coast rivalry with some pointed lyrics at his adversaries, Tupac especially. But at the same time, he embraced West Coast sounds. He had the song Going Back to Cali. Um, that was dope and was a clear West Coast production style. Um, it was a double disc album, but there was no filler. The production was insane, the best he'd ever had, and it complemented his braggadocious verses perfectly. And he also delivered some crazy impressive radio-friendly hits at the same time. Like, Biggie was in his bag. He had a whole ass song called Player Hater, which features him singing in all the wrong keys over a Delphonic sample. And somehow you still can't turn away from it. It was amazing. Um, his charm radiated throughout the album. It's his magnum opus delivered after he couldn't enjoy the success of one of the best two album combos in hip hop history. One of the best one two punches in hip hop history. Life After Death was also eerie because obviously of the album's title, but many of the song's content like My Downfall and You're Nobody Till Somebody Kills You, which ends the album and how it almost seemed like Biggie knew he didn't have much time left or was predicting his own death. He was always rapping about his mortality, and he perfectly completed the storyline that he began on Ready to Die, and he tied a perfect bow around his career before he passed. It was literally a game-changing album that would have made Biggie the biggest star in hip-hop, um, and there are so many Hall of Fame classic songs on this project, and and that's what makes this the best posthumous album. It's It's untouchable. Nobody's done anything like it. And so, you know, that's the gold standard of posthumous albums there. And so another one is Tupac. You know, like I said, he has albums for each category, and this one definitely deserves mentioning. The Don Caluminati, The Seven Day Theory by Tupac. Um, not all of Pac's posthumous albums were grave-robbing catastrophes. He actually had a couple that I think were successes. The best of those were his first, uh, was his first posthumous album the don caluminati the seven day theory um while i think this album is a good addition to Pac's catalog its release wasn't completely wholesome the album was recorded in three days mixed in four that's why it was called the seven day theory um in august of 1996 and the album was planned to be released in march of 1997 tupac was killed in september of 96 and in order to capitalize on that suge knight and death row rushed the release of the album and it was released two months after he was killed um that's even more evident that they rushed it because they mislabeled the official name of the album Pac wanted it to be called Caluminati the seven day theory under the alias machiavelli the don instead they named it the don Caluminati the seven day theory under the alias machiavelli 
Um, regardless, the album is one of the few Pac albums worth listening to after his death, and that's largely because he completed it before his passing. After an album like All Eyes on Me, this album is much darker. Um, the Thug Life boastful Pac from that album was replaced by one that was much more grave and morose and like like so focused on vengeance. Um, the political Tupac was gone with this album focusing on a more aggressive gangbanging stance, which made this album one of his most polarizing. Tupac is poetic. He's spiritual. He's violent on this album. Like Biggie, he focused a lot on this East Coast, West Coast rivalry. That's clearly evident in the intro. Um, the song Toss It Up, which was a diss of Dr. Dre after he left Death Row Records. It was a remix of No Diggity by Blackstreet, which Dr. Dre was featured on. And then there's the album Closer Against All Odds, which was an all-out declaration of war against the East Coast, calling them all out by name um, again after Hit em Up. Um, it makes it odd to release an album like this, or specifically a song like that, where Pac says, I might be murdered for all the shit that I said after he's been murdered. So that's why I say it wasn't, this album wasn't completely uncontroversial because the label was still doing label things. Um, the album doesn't have the hits or the stature of his predecessors. Um, it mostly features verses from his Outlaws crew with the production handled by infrequent Pac uh, collab- collaborators. And it's not as cohesive as his previous works either, although it's still pretty well-rounded. Um, but it's an incredible look into the mind of Tupac just a month before he would be murdered. Um, plus, the album contains multiple songs that are everlasting in Pac's catalog, like Hail Mary, Me and My Girlfriend, which inspired 03 Bonnie and Clyde by Jay-Z, um, Toss It Up crazy to live and die in LA like crazy alone is an underrated song with the sensitive Pac being reflective it had a dope verse from badass who was the only one who had a verse ready that day and that song is further proof of the inherent duality within Tupac Hail Mary is an all-time Pac song in its own right written when a paranoid Tupac was seeing visions of himself dying the content of this album is another eerie listen just like life after death Um, considering Pac had died when this album was released. Um, The album has mixed reviews because of how it holds up to his earlier releases, but it was really a solid album, especially if you look at it in a vacuum. It's an album written with Pac in a similar mindset to Biggie before they both passed, obsessed with beef and their own mortality, and it took them both under. Um, So two of the, I think, the best posthumous albums we've gotten easily were by Big and Tupac. Um... Another album is The Shining by Jay Dilla. Um, I honestly didn't know um, much about um, Jay Dilla back when I was coming up listening to um, hip-hop. But everyone knows about Jay Dilla's Donuts instrumental album and how he completed it in his hospital bed before he died. It's a classic But he was also working on The Shining. He just didn't get to finish it. The album was 75% complete before Dilla passed. It was the first full-length solo album with newly recorded vocals released by Dilla in five years. It's legendary. Like His mother and friends would bring him records and he would sample and mix them all in his hospital bed. Um, When he passed, uh, his mother entrusted his close friend and fellow Detroit artist Kareem Riggins to complete the album. 
frequent collaborators show up on this album like Common, Madlib, Black Thought, D'Angelo, and so many more. And Dilla's experimental production complements them all individually. Um, he could produce for R&B just as easily as hip hop. And songs like Love, So Far To Go, Dime Piece, Weave, Neo Soul, and real hip hop throughout the album with ease. Um, Dilla is singing and rapping and his production certainly takes center stage with added help from his legendary friends. It was released six months after his death and it truly helps to honor Dilla's long lasting legacy as the project was clearly left in the right hands. Another project is the dock of the Bay by Otis Redding. I didn't even know this was a posthumous album until I started doing research. It is honestly crazy that sitting on the dock of the Bay was not a song released while Otis Redding was alive. Um, Also didn't know that Otis Redding died at the age of 26. That's insane. Um, But he died in December of 1967, and the Dock of the Bay contains music from as early as 1965, and he had even recorded a few songs from the album a few days before he passed. Um, Let me start by saying this album is great, and it was an example of many things. Stax Records, which was a primary influence on the creation of Southern and Memphis Soul, basically began to go under after Otis Redding's death. They were already considering bankruptcy, and they were in a fierce battle with Atlantic Records, who they had a distribution deal with. Um, And they were in a battle with them because they discovered a clause that Atlantic had full ownership of any distributed Stax recordings from 1960 to 1967. Um, So this gave Atlantic the right to release all the Otis Redding music and albums they wanted after he passed. Um, Now, Otis Redding is a rare example of an artist whose posthumous albums were consistently good, but it's also a prime example of what can happen when the creative control is taken from the artist and the people who worked with them. Um, Now, this album was also a prime example of how vigorously we consume posthumous music. The lead single and possibly Otis Redding's most iconic song, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, became Otis's first number one hit on the Billboard 200. And it was the first posthumous song to reach number one on the Billboard 200. And it moved four million units. He also won two Grammys after his death for this song, and the album is Otis's most successful project. It showcased him experimenting with a different, more popular style after defining soul at only 26 years of age and putting his stamp on traditional R&B and rock records. His Stax family helped complete some of the songs that he didn't get to finish, including the lead single, and it was released a couple months after his death. It's likely the closest thing to what Otis Redding would have released, and it helped him be honored in the best way. So, you know, that album is just an example of labels capitalizing on an artist's death, artists, fans, or sorry, artists, um, friends, and collaborators coming together to help complete an artist's vision. Um, And also an example of how artists' death are sensationalized and how fans you know, buy up artist works after they're died. Like this was a prime example of all of those theories. And then the final album that I want to talk about in the warm to the touch category is Circles by Mac Miller. So as far as completing an artist's vision after they've passed, I think Circles is one of the best posthumous albums we've ever received. Um, before Mac Miller passed in September of 2018, which is crazy, I can't believe it's been almost two years Um, One month earlier, he had released his fifth studio album, Swimming. 
Before he passed, he was working on a companion album with a complimentary sound to swimming called Circles, meant to complete the concept of swimming in circles. And apparently this would have even been a trilogy where the third record would have been purely hip hop. But I'm not sure how far into recording that Mac was, so it's unlikely that that one materializes. But legendary producer John Bryan was working on Circles with Mac Miller before he passed, and with the family's blessing, he devoted his time to completing the album's demos based on time spent with Mac working on the album. And honestly, the result is perfect. On Swimming, Mac seemed to be searching for peace or relief from the depression that he sometimes felt trying his best to take care of himself. On Circles, he sounds so much more peaceful. It's like he had finally unlocked the ways to feel better and be better, and that radiates throughout the album. He leaves it all out there being completely vulnerable, allowing listeners to take the journey with him. Surf and complicated woods and I Can't See. It's just a beautiful collection of sentiments and songs, even floating from the deluxe edition. It's a wholesome listening experience. And the album saw Mac continue to transition into more than just a rapper, but an accomplished singer-songwriter. The album is his least hip-hop, with clear elements of indie, pop, rock, even folk music, but it's a clear and sensible progression. Um, Swimming was an album that felt different after his death. Circles was an album that made me wonder if maybe Mac was on his way to a good place after all and was just this close to making it there. The album is so successful because John Bryan was able to capture what seems, to the best of our knowledge, to be the logical and meaningful conclusion to Mac's concept. It just feels that way, and it seems like the best way to have a meaningful end to Mac's career musically. It's it's just the perfect way to release a posthumous album with what John Bryan and uh, Mac's family did. Um, so those are all examples of the three categories, Warm to the Touch, Infinite Vault, and Potpourri. And honestly, there are so many more. Shoot for the Stars, Aim for the Moon by Pop Smoke, uh, just released this last month, is an album done correctly, easily belongs in the Warm to the Touch category, with 50 Cent doing his best to carry out the late rapper's vision. Bad Vibes Forever by XXXTentacion belongs in the Infinite Vault category, but the 25 demos repurposed by more than a dozen producers seem like an obvious cash grab and capitalization on his memory. There's TLC's 3D album after Left Eye Pass. There's The Big Picture by Big L. People had something to say about most of these albums, rightfully so, because the art of releasing a posthumous album is a tricky one. Most times it's being led by greed, but there are times when people get it right. Um, now, I know untimely deaths make it difficult for the perfect conditions that were present for Biggie or Max albums to be released to happen for most artists. It's about honoring the artist's vision and their image and their creativity. And if you can release an album without compromising those things, I think it might be worth doing that to continue to add to their legacy. That's why Leah's estate has been so focused on protecting her legacy and her artistry. They very closely view any requests to sample her music. It's why many of her greatest hits and albums aren't available for streaming to our detriment. It's why that posthumous Aaliyah album that was executive produced by Drake never materialized because the family denounced it, fans denounced it. While we may not completely agree with every decision, they're definitely holding Aaliyah's memory and legacy close. And if more estates and labels did that, maybe we'd get so many more good posthumous albums. We're going to be getting albums like this until the end of time. As long as artists pass away, their estates, their families, their labels are going to release unreleased music. 
Um, I just hope that albums like Mac Miller with Circles, Pop Smoke with Shoot for the Stars, Aim for the Moon, Juice World with Legends Never Die, I hope these albums provide a template for how best to carry out these visions in the future. And that is it for the Dig Deeper segment this week. That is it for the podcast this week. I thank you all for tuning in. Um, Shout out to you all. Um, Like I said, uh, the socials are at the bottom of the screen. Follow me on those. Follow the stream. Tell your friends about the stream. Um, I usually drop the audio version of the podcast every Tuesday. So it'll be available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, all of those on Tuesday. Get the podcast newsletter, sign up for the mailing list. Um, you already know what it is. This has been Thinking Outside the Boombox, your number one source for hip-hop and R&B news. Um, got more cool stuff. I got some some cool podcast ideas flowing up here. I just got to you know, meet with some people to get some stuff, some stuff done, but there's some cool stuff coming. Thank you all for tuning in. Tell your friends about the podcast. Let them know that this is your number one source for hip-hop and R&B news. Peace. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.